Welcome to the NACE Clinical Highlights Show. This episode features Q&A with Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer with NACE, and Dr. Aman, Medical Director and Founder of the Behavioral Medical Center in Troy, Michigan, from a recent NACE virtual symposium. The question is really patients with depression and anxiety, regardless or only if they don't respond to therapy, but also what about senior citizens with memory loss? Is that another person that we should be screening? So I think we should just focus a little bit more on who to screen. Oh, for sure. I think for me, everybody that comes into my office, I screen for ADHD. I think that way I'm not missing something. And when I give them rating scales, I say, you know, you're going to look at these and maybe you'll identify with some and not others. But a negative result is not a bad thing. It just helps me understand we're not missing something. So I would screen those patients with anxiety and depression. We saw those rates of anxiety at 47%. And remember, our prevalence rate in seniors was 2.8%. Why not ask them? Why not make sure we're not missing So that? do you think memory loss should, should be a trigger? I think memory loss is one of the most common things adults will say about their symptoms of ADHD. I'm forgetting everything. Remember our PDF? F was forgetful? Mm-hmm. That's part of memory. So I do think we should ask them. Right. So is given that seniors can have it, do you ever not screen? Do you think that the patient is just beyond the point of screening because you wouldn't do anything for them? It's hard for me to not do anything for them, not ask a few probing questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly we're going to have seniors that are not ADHD, that they truly might have memory loss. Maybe we need to refer them for a more extensive evaluation. So certainly there's going to be those kinds. Do we know why some children seem to get better or the disease seems to get better into adulthood? So I think the big question there, Greg, is are they really getting better or are we just seeing that their hyperactivity diminishes and they seem better to us? Maybe they are still left with a lot of inattention and it needs to be addressed. We still need to focus on how to help them, coaching and different strategies. Right. I guess if those patients say, well, I used to take Ritalin as a child, but I don't need it anymore. Maybe those are the people who really need to think twice about, do you really not need it or you just don't recognize the same symptoms? Because you don't give it up when you get into adulthood, right? Right. Neurocognitivity training in addition to medication. Yeah, I think it's really important to tell our patients medications can't do it all. We like to look at non-medicinal approaches, neurocognitive training, as well as other things. So I might refer someone to an ADHD coach, for example, or I might refer them for biofeedback, one form of that type of training. There, There actually are more and more options out there for patients to look at what can help them in addition to taking a medicine every day? You know, we were talking earlier about this very issue. So if you have a patient that is old or has comorbidities, the question was, do you bother screening because you can't have a stimulant drug, but that doesn't mean you can't do other things. Right. It's so true. I mean, like I said, if if I see that there's a medical history that concerns me in that older adult, or maybe they just have a lot of medications on board and they don't want to add another one, they're just not comfortable then that's definitely an area where mm-hmm. we would look at that. So let me ask you another question. Food impacts or drinks and may, or maybe comorbid um, drugs. We have a lot of teenage patients that may get on therapy and they are, they are using substances, illegal or, or not. Um, what about drug-drug interactions or food-drug interactions? How do we you know, advise our patients? Well, I think it's another very good question, and I think it's important to, to address. When I talk to teenagers or patients in general, I really don't ask them, do they use drugs? I kind of open it up to, 
what drugs do they Just use? Just assume they're using Exactly. Something. And then it kind of lets them know it's okay to ask me the, or for them to answer that honestly. And when they talk about that, then I'll ask them, well, what does that do for you? Mm -hmm. And in our ADHD patients, you'll hear so regularly that, you know, it helps them to be more focused, to be less distracted. So in the case of drugs, there's no safety around those illicit drugs and these medications. And I educate them about that too. And then I just offer that, you know, there's a better way for us to do this. Mm -hmm. There's a safer way for us to give you what you're seeking by that substance, whatever it is, or that nicotine. And in the case of food, parents are asking all the time, you know, do I, is there something I should or shouldn't give them? Mm -hmm. Should I eliminate this? Should I eliminate that? We know that some of our medications are not as effective if they're given citrus, orange juice, for example, things like that. I don't know that I've seen any real benefit personally, clinically, in my experience to eliminating red dyes and mm -hmm. things like that. But I think it's all about talking and educating and individualizing for that particular patient. Do you recommend drug screening before initiating treatment, particularly with stimulants? I think that's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I don't tend to do routine drug screening. I think if there's a suspicious or concerning situation, yes, I would. Now, I have to say this may change moving forward. I think with all the monitoring, with concerns around abuse and diversion, it may be that the natural protocol is to go ahead and do screening for everybody when we're taking that in consideration. But right now, I'm doing it more in the way of when I have a, a concern that's mm -hmm. coming up. Yeah, ADHD medication, a lifetime treatment, can it ever be tapered off or stopped? That's a question that really patients want to know. Parents of kids and adults too, am I committed to the rest of my life on this? And I think what I tell them most commonly is, you know, let's just start by taking it one month at a time. Or in the younger kids, I'll say, one academic year at a time. And, you know, as they get older, we want them to be able to learn more tips and strategies on how to manage their ADHD so that maybe they can be on less or, or not at all. But I don't promise them that. I just tell them, you know, I'm going to work with you along mm -hmm. the way. And at the, at the end of the day, we just want to make sure whatever you're taking, you're functioning to your most optimal level. And so it can't, it's not cut and dry. So we work just one year at a time. Right. That's great. Managing the anxiety that patients have with ADHD. How do you, you know, do you think that if you address their ADHD, the anxiety goes away? Or if it doesn't, how do you navigate yeah. that with your patients? Yeah. So that's that comorbidity question, especially when we see anxiety at 47%. And I think for the patients, you know, we have to think about... Um, What's the more severe or significant thing? If their anxiety is really incapacitating, then maybe we need to go ahead and treat their anxiety first because if we use a stimulant, we might make that anxiety worse. On the other hand, if I have a patient who has mild or moderate anxiety and I can treat their ADHD knowing they're overwhelmed because it's their untreated ADD causing it, mm -hmm. then a lot of times they don't necessarily need the extra anxiety treatment. Their busy brain settles down. They're less overwhelmed. Sometimes we still need some, but not quite as much. So let's say the patient walks into our office and we're really astute. We've listened to this lecture and we're keen for ADHD, but we're really screening them. We're doing an ADHD screening, an anxiety screening, a depression screening, and right from the get-go, they have comorbid disease. How do you prioritize the strategy of treating that patient? I think if the patient's coming in and you're screening, like you just said, which is the right way to do it, and you have, let's just use for a moment depression, because that was also quite high. 
if they're suicidal, you're going to obviously go after that depression and treat that. So I do really look at, I use those PHQ-9s. I look at the severity of both their depression and anxiety. If it's on that higher level, you're probably going to need to treat that first. And if it's on the more mild moderate, I will go after and treat the ADHD first and then see if I need to consider it. Would you ever actually treat two conditions concurrently? I do at times, Greg, but the, the problem sometimes is if there's a if I'm using medications and I've started to, then they call with a side effect, which one it's caused confusing. it? You know, so I might maybe I'll wait two, three weeks and I'll start the other medication a few weeks in. To me that's preferred over at the same time if I can if I can. Great. How often do we reevaluate the RS score? So you've done your initial screening tool. Right. You're like, okay, you've got it. I'm right. going to treat. I'm right. confident. How do we stop right, right. all that? So I like to do that actually at baseline like we talked about and certainly at the first visit when they first started medication. And then if I adjust the dose, I like to do it again at the next visit. Now my visits are about four, four to six weeks apart. And so once I have them feeling their their scores less than 18, then I will wait. I don't need to do it every single time. Mm -hmm. And maybe if they start to talk about symptoms again down the road, six months later, they're saying, all of a sudden I'm feeling more distracted. I'm struggling again. Then I'll repeat it. So I don't do it every time, but on the front end, certainly more until I get them to that less than 18 mm -hmm. score that we're looking for. So some there are some questions about uh, drug-free holidays. Um, Talk a little bit about time off medication, and because one of my concerns, that, as I see this data, is the morbidity and mortality, Absolutely. and whether or not drug-free holidays are appropriate, and how you navigate that. Kids, they're young, they're going to camp, they're going to college. How do you yeah. for, how do you have that discussion? Well, it's a perfect time for that discussion because it is summer, and we get this all the time. You know, my child's not in school. What do they need to focus for? But I really do talk a lot about unstructured time, even if they have some structure with a camp here or there, it's still majority unstructured. And they're at a much greater risk for their symptoms to show. And then a lot more negative attention from struggles. And like you said, all the, like we talked about, the morbidity and mortality. I talk about drug holidays most commonly in patients, for example, if they're concerned they're not eating well and they want to take a break on Saturday and Sunday and they're not severely hyperactive or, or impulsive, but I, I generally discourage it. Mm -hmm. I really prefer them to, if at all possible, have some medication seven days a week. And depending on the medicine, if they skip days, the level goes, you know, in the non-stimulants mm -hmm. like atomoxetine, we wouldn't want them to do that. Right. So I think it's another one of those individualizing situations, but I tend to err on the side of wanting them to take it overnight. And I agree. And the, the data slide, the morbidity and mortality data slide that we present here, when I started to see that data, it was really shocking. And I think everybody should really think about that as you're talking to your patients. In adults, it was 424% mortality. Yes. So the question is, do you ever not want your mortality risk low? It you always like, want it. It seems like a no-brainer. It seems like it. 425%. So what about short-acting medications? You know, we, we are faced with medications that can be very expensive. There are some generic options. And college students, it's, you know, short-acting uh, stimulants are readily available. How do you navigate? Is there a place where you might use them, where you accept it, or you just say absolutely no? And just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, as we saw, short-acting stimulants have a lot of up, down, up, down, and peak and trough, and not very smooth. And again, we're asking our adult ADHD patients who are forgetful and distracted, remember our PDF, 
that they uh, remember to take a medicine several times a day, not to mention that they're not approved in adults and they're just so much of the college campus abuse and diversion. So I really try to minimize. I have very few that I'm giving that to even as a boost. Like we mm -hmm. saw the, if we're not using a medication like the three bead, and that's when maybe I will do it is that I need to add a boost at the end of the day to one of my long acting products. If a patient comes to you and says they used Ritalin as a child, do you think that we should stick with that molecule or switch to one of the other long-acting medications that are currently available? If the patient comes to me and says, I used Ritalin as a child, my next question is, do you remember if it worked? Did mm -hmm. it help you? That does not mean that I'm going to use immediate-release methylphenidate. I'm going to then look at a long-acting methylphenidate for them as an adult, perhaps. Because as opposed they, to an amphetamine. Correct. We might stick with the same If role. they responded. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't consider, as we saw, we tend to use more amphetamine in our adult population. And perhaps we find it works better for them or we find that they tolerate it better. I think you can consider either. But if they have a history of response to methylphenidate, then you certainly could consider a long antimethylphenidate first in, as an adult. Birgit, are there any patients that you would support using here in medicines, that the patient only wants to use it when necessary? Would you, would you fall into that? <laughs> so that does come up. You know, I have these patients that are just silently inattentive. They really don't need it. They need it for work. They need it for certain times. Mm -hmm. I fall into that maybe 10 to 15% of the time. I, I know the patient's trustworthy. I monitor them. I'll be honest. I mm -hmm. have a few in my practice like that. There are times it's not appropriate. I only do it when it's appropriate. Okay. Somebody's asking about Im implications of getting insurance labeling when labeling a patient. Do you ever concern if we label a patient with ADHD that it's going to affect their insurability? You know, <laughs> I have to think about that. I, I don't think that's really ever been a problem. I have had patients have concern around it, but I don't think that's ever been a big issue. Sometimes they'll require me to write a letter or something to affirm that they're officially diagnosed. I'm sure they are concerned, but I, it hasn't really been a huge hindrance. Okay, terrific. Comment on the cardiac risk of stimulants to our seniors. It is a population where we're gonna have more concern in the way of our risk, potentially. And so I think we have to do the same very uh, prudent monitoring of their medical history, and um, we may have a lot of them that really are not candidates. Mm -hmm. So be sure to ask those questions, and if they really want treatment, they may need to see that cardiologist for input, right. for comfort. Is, is there anything about the medications in particular, since they're different classes, which might make you pick one amphetamine or um, pulphenidate? Yeah. So I think it really does boil down to, for me, I like to look at what have they been on before and what has been their effect, and also how well did they tolerate them. I do look at family history response. Mm -hmm. If there are a lot of family members responding to one or the other, I will then use that for use them that first. So those are kind of some guidelines. But I, too, like that slideshow, 13 and above to adulthood, I tend to use amphetamine more in that population and methylphenidate than the and younger ones. In the last couple minutes, maybe you can just sort of summarize your, your final pitch to our audience of how to do a better job of taking care of their patient. What are the real takeaways that they need to come home with from this? I think the takeaways are, Greg, that A, we need to ask our patients the right, the right questions. I mean, we're all good at taking histories. We know how to do that. There are adults that could have been diagnosed sooner 
tell a story of, I have been on every single medication and either none of them work or they only work for a little bit. And they're frustrated and they're discouraged and they're disappointed. And then you, you ask the right questions. You ask the PDF screener questions. You give them a rating scale. And it shows that some of the struggle that they've had is, is ADHD as an adult. And so when they come back and they say, you know, Dr. Amon, the fog cleared, the light went on, it's like the first time I wore my glasses, they're, they're thrilled, things are going better. Sometimes it is a little bittersweet. Why didn't anybody, you know, ask me this sooner? Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to say is, don't forget to ask the questions about adult ADHD within your already routine history taking and give them the rating scales and look at treatment options. And also, don't uh, only treat partially. Get them to that full functional improvement. Get them to that score of less than 18 because they deserve that and we should be able to do that for them. Right, I, I couldn't agree more. Everybody, this is our disease. This is a primary care condition. We're good at talking to patients, so don't be intimidated by it. Don't be afraid to open the door because it really is very rewarding when you hear that patient come back and say, how come nobody ever did this for me before? It can be life-changing. Oh, for sure. Great. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the NACE Clinical Highlight Show. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and take a moment to visit naceonline.com to register for upcoming live CME and CE symposia and to take NACE on-demand CME and CE courses. Also, be sure to visit and like us on Facebook at NACE CME.